broadcasting from an undisclosed location. From a secret hunting spot known only to him and the guy who told him about it and possibly the guy who told the guy who told him. It's a show all about hunting in New Zealand and around the globe. This is The Hunting Show. Find The Hunting Show on Facebook and Twitter for up-to-date information on upcoming shows and topics. This might sound like a really strange thing to say. I really like winter. I like this time of year because I get to spend a little bit of time at home. And although I get out into the hills, I don't tend to push myself out probably as much as I do over summer. In fact, definitely not as much as I do in summer. That doesn't mean I'm not thinking about it. Now, one thing that really struck me about duck shooting this year was the cooking. Those out there that know me know that cooking is one of my great passions. I spent a good portion of the season at the Mai Mai in between shots cooking spectacular food and loved every minute of it. There's something about being with good mates, good people, men, women, children, whoever's around you and cooking amazing food outdoors. And now, in the sort of deep, darker months of winter, gosh, it's getting cold, it's getting dark by the time I'm finished work, I am now benefiting from the fruits of my labour. And what I mean by that is that in the past couple of months, the raw bits and pieces, my freezer got pretty damn full. And I'm enjoying now serving that or getting that meat. And that's a up meat. It's getting that meat to the dinner table for people I enjoy being around. How do you find that? Is that part of the craft for you? Is that part of our art? Taking it, and a lot of hunters, look, I know there's a lot of hunters out there that can't cook. You know, everything they cook turns out rubbery and horrible and burnt and raw. But for me, getting it to the dinner table and preparing it and using somewhat wild ingredients, and by the way, that's going to be my next big thing. Um, Before you start wondering (laughs) where I'm going with this, I am really interested in starting to use wild ingredients. And if there's anyone out there that's very good at that, you know, very good at that botany, what can be eaten, what can't be eaten, what tastes good, please get in touch with me because I really want to explore this a little bit more. So I'm going to be on a bit of a... full frontal mission to try and find out what I can eat and what I can prepare using stuff that I kind of find in the bush. I was with a dude once that reckoned that he could make a salad next to a railway track. Railway tracks are great for finding edible stuff growing next to them. Awesome, awesome time of the year. Loving it. Probably putting on more weight than I should. Going forward, did have an awesome duck shooting season. I know it's not over and I am going to get out and stay a couple more nights here and there as the season progresses and before anyone starts writing to me I am well aware of the rules of Fish and Game State and I will be abiding by them and there's certain species that come off the list first and blah blah Um, so before you start smashing at your keyboard definitely aware (laughs) of what I can and can't do so please um, anyway I'm going to get out some more but had an awesome season for all those reasons The, the food the people, the fun, the stories. And the stories are great. And the interesting thing was, we are having a few beers the other night talking with some of the guys that I shoot with, Ian Hendel, Mike Felton, even James Bell from Evolve Outdoors. And 
it's interesting. Most of the best stories were not about the the the, the ducks. It was about the thing that happened, or um, the joke that was told, or the state you got into. Th- these these are the best stories, and they're the best times. So value them. And those of you that take children out hunting with you, value those times as well, because I assure you, when they're older, that's what they're going to remember. This week's interview is one that I've been waiting for for some time. It's with someone that, well, I've considered to be a little bit of a legend of a name, in, certainly in the hunting industry, but I'm sure in in the knife-making world as well. So joined by telephone, I have Brian Baker, a master cutler. And Brian, how are you? Good, thanks. I'm fine. <laughs> First of all, what is a master cutler? That's a, that's a new term to me. Well, it's it, it goes back to the days of uh, Sheffield, England, when the master cutlers were referred to the people that actually own the factories. They not only own the factories, they own the brand, they employed the staff, and they were the, the owners of the, the Sheffield knife brand. So that's where the terminology comes from. It, it sort of, it's sort of an old English terminology. Nowadays, the master cutler is a, a purely ceremonial role in the city of Sheffield, and that, that title could be given to someone that is, for instance, a city councillor. So um, that's where the terminology comes from. Yeah, and, and you've picked that up for yourself and running with that, or is it something that was given to you? Well, I... I started making knives when I was 19, going back to 1982. And <laughs> yep. I'd been in the, the business for a few years, and a guy turned up at my doorstep. He was a, he was a Czechoslovakian cutler, and um, he had done his trade after the Second World War. It was a 10-year apprenticeship, yep. and he basically was closing his business down, and he, was, he passed on the knowledge to me. So uh, that's where I got it from. I was taught in the trade by a, a European cutler, oh, and he used to make a brand of knife in New Zealand. Yeah, so you started in 1982. Now, I was barely alive then, Brian. Um, <laughs> <laughs> to be honest, I'd been around a couple of years, and that's about it. What is your background? Yes. So you started in 1982. What, I'm fascinated into what is, what is the learning process to learn to make knives. I mean, I've got one of your knives uh, less than 50 feet away from me that you made for me very recently, actually. Love it to bits. Yeah. How do, how do you become that? Well, it, it's a very hard trade to, to get to know by learning out of books or to learn off the internet. Mm. Um, to make it as a, like I make it as a business and it's, it's got to pay for itself, otherwise I wouldn't be in business if it didn't pay for itself. Yeah. Uh, it, it requires a different mindset to someone that's, for instance, tinkering in a back shed as a hobbyist. Um, it, it really, by meeting the European cutler that I did, that gave me an insight in, in what I should be doing. And quite frankly, if I didn't meet him, I probably wouldn't be in business this day because I would have been a lot, like a lot of people that started would give up um, and be discouraged by by the business. So, hmm. yes, yeah, that's sort of how it got started. Yeah, but so how do you go from being guy in the back shed, and I'm not suggesting anyone out there does this, but to being guy in the back shed to having a great brand like Sford? What's well, your story with that? Well, it's just taken me a long time to build up a brand. Mm. Um, I, I, I think the key to it was in the name and the design of the logo and things like that. Yeah. And I, I, from fairly early on, I, I discovered the the, uh, the benefits of branding and having a having a market presence. So when I first started, I, I, it was another chance meeting. I was in a, a pet shop and I met a guy that was 
um, I was getting some engraving done, and I met a guy that was looking for agencies to take around New Zealand sports shops. So he then started working for me and got the knives into most of the sports shops in New Zealand, and that's going back 1983, and we just built it up from there. And um, I quickly learnt that copying knives that were made in books in America is not going to suit the New Zealand hunting scene, and I started designing knives that hunters wanted. So um, that's how it sort of developed. I sort of had to change my tack a bit and uh, forget what the Americans were doing and uh, you know, make a New Zealand knife, you know, which is um, which is what I've done. Just before we move on, where did the name come from? Um, I just thought of the name up. I, I wanted <laughs> something that was simple, yep. uh, was easy to remember, and sort of had connotations of something being sharp. So I thought of the name Sword, and um, to stop any trademark. Um, Legal action. I, I put the umlaut above the Z of the O, which is Swedish um, grammatical um, symbol of two dots, and that yeah. pronounces sword. But most people say it's sword. But um, in any language, the, the name sword doesn't mean anything. In fact, the nearest to it is S V A R D, which means sword in Swedish. So. And I use Swedish steel, so that tied in with that also. Very, very cool. You talk about making knives for New Zealand hunters. Brian, what makes a, a good knife? Well, I think, first of all, it, it's got to be um, easy to sharpen, yeah. have, a, have a good thin edge, and not be too thick. Um, so we make knives that are quite thin, anywhere from 1.6 millimetres to... 2.3 and we really make them over that we make some large knives but i think what makes a good hunting knife is is it's each holding it's ease of sharpening and designed for purpose uh we, we have different knives for pig sticking as well as for skinning or fish filleting and we do general purpose knives as well so we we sort of cover the whole range of knives that uh an outdoorsman would buy and do you think that's why i mean look around anyone's truck or in, in their hunting kit in New Zealand and a good chunk of them have a sword knife. You've done, you kind of have cornered that New Zealand made market from a mass produced point of view. I mean, not so much mass produced because all your knives are handmade, but there's just a lot of them around, Brian. There is a lot of them around. And, and last year we made 25,000 knives. Gee, yep. um, and a good chunk of that went into the New Zealand market and we also export to the United States. Uh, believe it or not, we send knives up to Germany. We have a distributor in Germany. Uh, we sell. We just got a new distributor in the UK, and we sell knives into Australia as well. So we're well, the ending up everywhere. Mm. You, you touched very briefly on you making knives for a purpose. I want to know more about that. I really want you to expand on this for me. What knives are for what purpose? Because when I'm heading to the hills, I'm not taking a whole swag of knives with me it's generally when I'm getting back and I'm, I'm dressing down an animal that I'm starting to to break into that full kit for me um, I've actually got one of your your farmer's knives actually and I find that's the best I one think... to head into the hills with because it's kind of in yeah. between everything and then when I get home I've actually got a full filleting kit what knife would you suggest for what purposes I want to sort of really break into that for a little while well first of all what I've discovered is people generally know what they want and for you a farmer's knife might be the, the perfect knife for you another person might decide that a drop point style suits them 
another person may decide it's a boning knife or a curved skin or so. It's not up for me to tell people what knives they should be using. In fact, a lot of people have a particular knife in mind that they might have been using over many years, and chances are it's one of mine. Yeah. Um, or if they've got an older style hunting knife that's made in the 60s or 50s, they tend to like that style of knife, and they tend to just keep using it or pass it on to their, their children or whatever, or their mates might they might demonstrate to their mates how they're using this particular knife, and then they go out and want to buy the same thing. So, yeah, it's, everyone's different. I, I, I really, really advise people what to buy. They sort of know themselves. Yeah, so when we're talking about, for example, um if you look at a boning knife, you've got different lengths. Yeah. Is that just depending on what your preference is, or do you buy a knife? That's really what I'm trying to understand. So I'm going and I want to I want to have two or three knives in my kit. Um, what yeah. what three? Actually, we'll nail it down to that. What three knives would you recommend people had? Well, the three most popular knives that we sell is a, a curved skinning style knife, and that covers the farmer's knife. Mm. A lot of farmers out there and sheep farmers use a curved skinning knife. So that's a very popular style. The other popular styles are drop point, which a lot of the deer stalkers and, and um, hunters around New Zealand use a drop point. Mm. And then the third most popular is a boning knife, and that's popular with people that maybe have been in the freezing works or they've used those particular knives and they're used to that. And we also sell pig-sticking knives, which are very specific to, to pig hunting. So, mm. um yeah, I've answered the question. No, you have, and I want to touch on the pig sticking knives because there's a, a, a opinions are, are varied on on what sort of knife you want for a pig sticking knife. But yours are very popular. I know that. What length of knife do I want when I'm sticking? Because I've all, a lot of people reckon that that we're using knives that are too long. Other people tell me we're using knives that are too short. Um, when you're making a pig sticker, what are you looking at? Well, we generally make the pig sticker blade between. I talk in inches because it, it's. It, it's easier for me, but between six and a half inches and seven inches, what we made. But I've also heard guys over the years telling me that they stick a pig with a with a four inch blade at drop point. So mm. everyone yeah, everyone's different what they use, but um, most of what we sell is between six and a half and seven inch pig stickers. Mm. All right, so we, we go forward now, and you've you've bought your knife, you've got it home, and we'll let's just say it's a Ford. But actually, probably knife care works out the same for every knife, maybe. Well, you tell yeah. me if it does. What, do, what am I doing to look after my knife? Well, a good idea when you're storing it to not store it in the sheath. Just maybe spray some CRC tackle guard or some WD-40 on the blade. Yeah. Um, some people, they, they get a bit hung up if the blade gets stained. Now, we mainly do carbon steel knives. Yeah. So if the blade gets stained, I always tell people, uh, lay the knife flat on a chopping board and get a green scotch brush pad and just, just run it along the blade and you'll get an even grey colour all, all over the blade. Yep. And when you start using the knife, cutting meat or whatever, and, and wash it under hot water, it, it sort of gets a blue tinge to the steel. Mm-hmm. Um, and, if, and I suppose you're going to ask me next about sharpening. Very much, yes. Um, <laughs> it, we, um, we have a, a, a sheet of paper that goes with every knife to explain sharpening and I think over the years it's, it's got too complicated, so I'm going to be reprinting that soon, and we're going to keep the message pretty simple, is to just use an oil stone or a diamond sharpener with a knife to, to set the edge and to maintain the edge, and um, don't get hung up about all these different types of fine Arkansas stones or compl- over-complicated stuff. 
I believe that if you're in the field and you just need to touch up the knife, you need to do it in less than 20 seconds. And uh, the best sharpener for that is an abrasive sharpener. My knives tend to be a lot of hard, a lot harder than your your average butcher's knives, so they they'll need an abrasive sharpener. Um, and we, in the last three years, we've we've actually included on in all the pouches a holder for a diamond sharpener, which we sell as well now. So all our sheets come with come with diamond sharpeners if people want to buy them. Yeah. Brian, if we're talking about a knife, say, that's been in the cupboard, it's lost its edge, and you're trying to get a new edge on it or, or trying to make sure or get back an edge on it, there's a lot of guys that spend an awful lot of time and never quite get it. They always feel like their knife's not sharp enough or not right, and you've probably seen some that have had a pretty rough time. Yeah. Um, I'd really like you to, to nail down, if you were going to explain to an apprentice how, how to sharpen a knife from you know, a cut edge, how do you do that? This is assuming the knife has got a thin edge mm. at the beginning. Um, if it gets a bit blunt, you can actually see the bluntness if you hold the edge to the light. You can see glints of light along the edge. Um, just give it a few wipes on a stone or a diamond sharpener and put it puts a coarse edge on the knife. It's not like a fine razor edge. In fact, the coarse of the edge on the knife, the longer the knife is going to cut for before it gets blunt. So I just explained to them to keep the angle to about 20 degrees. Alternate three or four times or five times each side with a sharpener by pulling the knife to you across the stone. Some people use a circular motion, that's fine. And just just get the glints of light off the edge and just, if you run along the finger, you, you sort of feel it sharp. And it doesn't feel as sharp as if it's razor sharp, it's, if it's been sharpened with a polished stone, but it cuts a lot better. And people, I think, tend to over-sharpen the knives and they, they actually don't know how well they cut but they keep trying to get them sharper and sharper, and it's just a matter of keeping it simple. Um, Occasionally people say, oh, the knife won't hold the edge, and I say, send it back and we'll have a look at it. And generally it's not the fact that the knife won't hold the edge, it's the fact that over the period of time, you've had the knife 10 years or whatever, they slowly increase the angle of sharpening until the knife gets quite bullet-shaped and quite blunt, and they say it's not holding an edge. Well, it's not the fact it's not holding an edge, uh, they just we just generally thin the knife down and send it back, and they're as happy as Larry. So um, there's a difference between, if you know what I mean, mm. between the knife getting too thick. Yeah, I completely agree. And I'm not an expert knife sharpener. That's why I'm asking these questions. I seem to muck around and try and get that edge on it, and probably do exactly what you're saying. Is I'm not checking how well it's cutting into into the meat i'm probably just checking the old you know run it up your forearm and see if the it cuts the hairs type of business are you saying that's yeah. not what i should be doing i do that by all means but um be aware that if if you sharpen the knife always keep it the same angle mm. like a 20 degree angle but what happens over time people start tipping the angle up further and further and further because they try and sort of follow the edge of it getting blunt, but what they need to do is just keep that angle and just, just maintain that angle and just give it a few strokes. And mm-hmm. if your angle's set up good in the first place, don't change it. Just just keep it like that. Mm. I wanted to – you touched very quickly on, you know, you chuck a bit of WD-40 on your knife. I've always used um, spray-on cooking oil when I put knives away. Am I doing the wrong thing with that? I've always sort of thought I don't want anything like WD-40 near the meat that I'm about to cut. Um, or when I yeah. go, uh, go around well, next cook, time? Cooking oil's fine. Um, yeah, any, any oil like that, or olive oil, anything like that's fine. Okay. 
Now, I just wanted to check. And one thing I really liked about your knife, now you know the story of this one. Um, I got you to make me a, a custom knife, actually, and you did that. Um, and the first one got stolen, which was unfortunate. Yeah. Someone wanted it more yeah. than I did. And one thing I really yeah. miss about that first knife is the first animal I cut into with that, I was um, a long way from home, and unfortunately there was a bit of adrenaline going, and I put it back into the sheath only for a few hours, but it had some of the uh, the fur on the on the blade. And when I took it out, that fur had marked the knife, but it made the thing look spectacular. Spectacular! Um, I really liked okay. it. In fact, it gave it a really nice character. Um, is that bad for the knife? Because I left it there. I mean, I kept it oiled, and the knife was lovely to use. Um, but I really enjoyed the character that 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 gave, particularly your knives and that high carbon steel. I suppose. Um, am I doing the wrong thing by letting it have a bit of character, or should I be trying to polish it back to to clean every time? I oh, definitely. I think the character's the best because if you go in any antique shop and you look at an old carbon steel knife, it's got a type of a character to it and it tells a, a story over the years of how the knife's been treated mm. and where, what it's been used to cut and it shows it in the steel and um, I quite often follow uh, my knives being sold secondhand on trade me and they, some of the cases the more the more used they are and the more pitted they are the, the more they sell for mm. it's um, it's that stainless steel doesn't get that um, it stays sterile it gets a few scratches on it but it doesn't show a character or a warmth to it and uh, this is what I found with carbon steel that um, it shows that it tells that story mm. and I, I really did enjoy that about your knives now I'm going before you roll your eyes at what I'm about to say because the old internet comes into play again I've been reading a lot online lately and actually preparing for this interview about guys that are browning their knives using um, the using coffee and bits and pieces as a way of giving it a nice edge that doesn't rust and these are high carbon knives Look, I'm, yeah. I'm not an expert. I'm just looking at the stuff going, that sounds cool. I'd like to know more about it. Is that something you've ever explored, like bluing or browning knives? Uh, a lot of our knives, uh, we still leave the bluing on them or the, or the scale on them for from heat treatment or from colouring. So um, not all of our knives have got a satin finish. A lot of them have got a bluing on them. Yeah. So it's a factory bluing. So... I don't mind people blowing them. If they want to do that, that's fine. Is there any advantage to doing it? Because someone did say to me, and again, this is probably someone that doesn't know, that if I'm blowing it incorrectly, particularly not if I'm heat blowing it rather than chemically blowing it, that's not good for the steel? Oh, so long as you're heat blowing it, you're not heating the blade up to over 230 degrees Celsius. Right. Um, over that temperature, you could start affecting the temper of the knife, particularly people that take the knife with an angle grinder to sharpen it. <laughs> uh, if they heat the steel up and colour the steel, they'll, they'll lose the edge on it. That's the thing with, with mm. tall steels. Uh, if you heat them up, they'll, they'll lose their edge. Mm. What, what's the disadvantage with stainless steel? You've talked about the, the character in bits and pieces, but most of the knives we see coming in mass-produced, there's lots of brands we don't need to mention. Is there a disadvantage to stainless steel? I think the main disadvantage to stainless steel is the fact that it's got we before I say that we do use a particular grade of stainless steel on our chef's knives and mm. some of our fillet knives. But I talk to you about a general stainless steel in general has got chromium up to about fourteen percent added to the steel, and what chromium does it stops the steel from rusting, but it also makes the steel abrasion resistant. Now, when you're sharp, trying to sharpen a knife on a, a diamond sharpener or an oil stone. If you've got a knife that's abrasion resistant, it's not going to sharpen up very crisply. 
you're not going to be able to get the edge on it. And um, there's some stainlesses out there that have quite large grain in the steel, and they were down for chipping the edge. Mm. Um, but the stainless that we use, we use a Swedish standard uh, stainless that was developed uh, initially for razor blades. So that's a very fine steel uh, made from virgin iron ore in, in Sweden, and that'll hold a very fine edge. And it was only just recently developed to be used in knives. And it's a very expensive steel, and not a lot of stainless steel knives are made with the steel because uh, the cost of it. Mm. So, yeah, I tend to we only use the, the top stainless steel, what, what, what I regard as a top. But stainless knives in general are harder to sharpen. Mm. Why is it then that most of the manufacturers or, or mass-produced knives are coming out with not all, but a good chunk of them are stainless steel? Yeah, I think that's because um, the manufacturers, they want to get the quantity of knives out there and they don't want to have to educate people. Right. And since the 1920s, stainless steel was only invented in 1920. And since then, they've been able to sell knives, but they didn't have to educate the, the consumer. They could just sell them off and, and sell through a distributor channel or through a retailer. And there was, no, there was no feedback coming to the manufacturer. How do I keep the knife clean or whatever? So it's becoming a very easy thing. Um, but it's like if you buy a Japanese sword, it's made out of carbon steel. If you buy a pop woodworking chisel, it's made out of carbon steel. Mm. Or people know how to use those, you know. Um, but when it comes to knives, um, there's got to be a bit of education given to the, the customer when he buys it. The last thing I want to cover with you, Brian, unless there's anything that you'd like to add, is the parts of the knives and what they're called. Because I've heard um, various parts of the knives called various things. And look, I'm sure we all understand there's a handle and a blade, but there's actually other bits of it. And I'd like you to just very quickly, I don't know if you've got a knife in front of you or you probably don't need it, just explain to me what all the different parts of the knives are called or a knife is called. Well, obviously the, the part that cuts is called the edge. And then you've got the part opposite that, which is the back of the knife, which you can call the spine of the knife. Uh, if we have a knife with a, a brass guard on it, you can call that a, a bolster or a guard. Um, yeah, it's, and, and it's just fairly simple terminology. It's, it's not rocket science. Mm. But there's the tang as well, isn't there? So you have a full... Yeah, um, if the knife has got a... A lot of our knives are full tang, which means the, the shape of the knife is... Is, is the outline and the handle gets riveted on as two slabs and the brass guard gets riveted on as two slabs. That's a full tang. And sometimes we do a knife which is called a, a stick tang or a rat tail tang, which we have a one-piece wooden handle and we slot it with a four-inch circular saw blade and the tang is put in and you only see the top of the tang and that's uh, like a partial tang as well. Mm. Sometimes we do a knife with a hidden tang, which is... Um, it's, it's completely hidden in the handle. Um, so we do those three types of tang. I'm assuming a full tang is best. Would that be right? Well, it's, it's regarded, it's, it's, it's sort of perceived as the best, but when we do a, um, a hidden tang knife or a partial tang knife, we heat the top of the blade up and we, we temper it back. So you're not going to get the knife breaking at the handle. Whereas right. That's something you can't do with a stainless steel knife. You can't, you can't do this process, which is called differential temper. Uh, 
the statements that might have designed it correctly will break. But um, we can just, on the carbon steel knives, we can we can temper them back. So the, the spine of the knife is a lot softer than the edge. Yeah. Okay. No, I've actually I've learned something there. So because I was always under the impression that a full tang is just what you want. You want to go for a full tang because it's stronger. Um, but you're saying that obviously we can't with a with a partial tang you can actually heat a certain part of it and that makes for a, it's not better, is it? Or is it just different? I'm just wanted to it's clarify. That. A, a full a full tang knife is going to be heavier. Yeah. Um, but our, our partial tang knives and hidden tang knives are cheaper anyway because mm. they use less steel. And I just want to ask you, you, you were originally, or do you still use um, saw blade steel? Was that something I've heard, or? Yes, but it, it, it's, actually, saw blade steel is the best steel to use, as the best, I regard as the best carbon steel, because it, it generally has about 15 to 2% nickel in it. And nickel, when you add it to steel, does magic things. It makes the steel uh, impact-resistant. Uh, and, of course, if you've got a circular saw blade or a band saw blade, uh, you want it to be impact-resistant when it's cutting through logs. So I use saw blade steel, either new or, or recycled steel. I, I take great pride in using recycled steel. You know, the chemistry of the steel is absolutely spot on. Um, and if you if you consider how a sawmill operates, um, they've got to get as many board feet of wood out of a saw blade before they sharpen it, because when they sharpen it, they stop the machinery, and it's a very expensive process to stop the machinery in a timber mill. So uh, in that respect, the, the Swedes have it of everybody else that they make the best bandsaw steel, the best circular steel, because... Um, no expense speed and the chemistry of the steel. Hmm. When I'm buying a sword knife, uh, how do I tell if it's new steel or secondhand? I like the idea of it actually being secondhand steel. Oh, you can't tell. Um, if anything you make out of stainless is new, mm. you, you can't buy that steel um, secondhand. But um, it's, it's no different. It's just we make a saving on it, we pass the saving down to the consumer because you, you probably know that. And knives are not expensive. You know, the low-range knives are not expensive. Hmm. Um, Actually, that's something I was going to just touch on, and I forgot earlier on, that your knives for handmade knives are very, very well-priced. And this isn't an infomercial for Sford knives, but um, is, is yeah. it just because of the way you're producing them? How are you getting a handmade knife at what I'd consider to be below handmade knife price? Well, we produce a lot of them. Yeah. And we have the machinery to... To help us do certain processes, it doesn't matter if it's done in the machine. Uh, it, it just makes it, we can make it in volume. For instance, um, we grind a knife, but we still, on, a, on an automatic machine, but we, we still finish it off by hand and put a thin edge on by hand. All the heat treatment of the knives, of the carbon knives, I do myself, so I've always done that. So each knife is individually hardened and tempered. Yeah. Uh, that process is not sped up. But just the processes that can be sped up are sped up to to cut the price down and and so we can you know we can we can competitively export to the United States because to export to the United States you've got to be really well priced. Mm. And you are doing that. Look, Brian, you've been an absolute sponge of knowledge, and I've really enjoyed talking to you. And I would like to catch up with you again. And thank you again for making my knife after the first one got nicked. There, <laughs> um, a pleasure to use it, mate. That's fine. A lot of them do get nicked and they get lost. So, 
<laughs> yeah, look, if I lost it, I'd tell you the truth. This one was unfortunately, Nick. And um, and again, if you want to find out more information on Sword Knives, I'm assuming you've, well, I do actually, I know you've got a website. What's your website, Brian? It's just very simple. It's Sword.com. Uh, yep, so, and Sword is spelled a little bit unusual. It's S-V-O-R-D, S- right? S-V-O-R-D, Felt like sword, but with a V instead of a W. <laughs> yeah. All right, Brian. Thank you very much, and we'll talk again. Thanks, Stephen. Well, that's us for another week. Have a great time out there. Be safe. Remember, you can win that great 12-month subscription to NZ Outdoor Hunting Magazine. All you've got to do is kind of join in, really. Uh, like us on Facebook. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Sorry, I don't do much on Twitter, and I'm just getting my head around Instagram, but I am on there doing my thing. Again, be careful out there, guys, and good hunting. Podcasting from an undisclosed location, from a secret hunting spot known only to him and the guy who told him about it, and possibly the guy who told the guy who told him. It's a show all about hunting in New Zealand and around the globe. This is The Hunting Show. Find The Hunting Show on Facebook and Twitter for up-to-date information on upcoming shows and topics.